May the 14th, 1948, is a significant day in world history. It was on that day that the Prime Minister of Israel arrived at the Tel Aviv Art Museum, was greeted by hundreds of Jewish leaders and reporters, stepped to the podium at precisely four o'clock local time and said these words, by the virtue of our natural and historical right, and on the strength of the resolution of the United Nations, we hereby declare today the establishment of the State of Israel. Friends, the dreams of millions upon millions of Jewish individuals came to fruition approximately 73 years ago. The establishment of Israel as a recognized state is a phenomenon. The truth of the matter is, Israel should be regarded as insignificant and obsolete. Geographically, it's no larger than the state of New Jersey. We live in a world of 7.8 billion individuals, of which only 14.6 million are Jews. We live in a country of 331 million individuals and a little less than 7 million are from Jewish descent. There are 1.8 billion Muslims, and I cannot speak for the nation of Islam, but I can suspect that more than a few Muslims would love to push the population of uh, Judaism into the Mediterranean Sea, and yet Israel still stands. The nation of Israel is not only recognized, but many times it is the subject of the evening news. And my question this morning is, how can this be? If you have your Bible, I invite you to take it to Romans, take it and turn to Romans chapter 11. I want to read the chapter in its entirety, verses 1 to 36. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. The Apostle Paul begins, chapter 11, verse 1, I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left and they're trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I've reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, it's no longer by works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. What then? What Israel sought so earnestly, it did not obtain, but the elect did. The others were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes, so they could not see, and ears, so they could not hear to this very day. And David says, may their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see, and their backs be bent forever. Again, I ask. Did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has, be, has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. 
But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? I'm talking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not boast over those branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches be broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature, contrary to nature, were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies on your account. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his past beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. And the church of Jesus Christ says, amen. This is the word of the Lord and you may be seated. Romans chapter 11 seems to hang and swivel on two questions. The first is found in verse 1. The second is found in verse 11. Verse 1, did God reject his people? Verse 11, have they, the Israelites, stumbled as to fall beyond recovery? Paul has used the first eight chapters to accurately communicate that all of us are sinful there is no one righteous, no, not one, whether you are of Jewish descent or non-Jewish descent, which the Bible calls a Gentile. 
So whether you're Jew or Gentile, all of us are completely and utterly sinful from the top of our head to the bottom of our feet. But God demonstrates his great love to us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So if we confess with our mouth, Jesus Lord, and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved, whether you're Jew or Gentile. And the one who declares that Jesus is Lord can also declare there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And nothing in this world and nothing in all of eternity can separate us from the love of God in Christ. It is this massive mercy of God that causes the Apostle Paul to celebrate as he realizes that he is a recipient of this mercy. Oh, but when he realizes that his own people, his own race, his nation, by and large, had rejected Jesus as Messiah. That source of great celebration now becomes a source of sorrow. So in chapter 9, the apostle pens these words, Oh, that I could be cut off and accursed, so that my own countrymen, my own nation, my own people might be saved. We have talked about the enormous request that Paul makes there. If it was possible that somehow for me to forfeit my faith and to give up my salvation in the hopes that it might just save some of my own countrymen, the apostle was ready to do that. And last week we asked the question, do you love your family that much? Do you love your neighbors that much? Do you love your country that much? When you see the brokenness of the lostness that surrounds you, that you would be willing to say, I will forfeit my faith in the hopes of saving some. Oh, the apostle is broken over the fact that his own family members, his own friends, his nation, by and large, had rejected Jesus as the Messiah. So he comes to a very logical question in chapter 11. Has God rejected his people? It's clear that his people have rejected him. So has God in turn rejected his people? You don't have to go very far back in the scripture to realize that in the first century, the majority of the Jewish establishment and the Jewish people rejected Jesus as king. Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas are in Iconium, and there they are preaching the gospel. But it is Luke who tells us that the Jewish leaders were stirring up the crowd and poisoning the minds of those listeners. In Acts chapter 18, we read that Paul was preaching the gospel, but the Jews became abusive. In Acts chapter 19, we are told that the Jewish leaders, upon hearing the good news of the gospel in Jesus Christ, they publicly maligned the way. And even as early as the first few decades of the first century, followers of Jesus were called followers of the way because Jesus had boldly declared, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So those followers of Jesus were known as followers of the way. And in Acts chapter 19, the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders, they were publicly maligning anyone who was part of this religious sect called followers of the way. Yeah, by and large, most people in the first century, most Jews in the first century, they had rejected Jesus as king. So since they had rejected God, 
had God rejected his people? And the answer is, by no means. May it never be, absolutely not, that God will not and cannot reject his people. He has never rejected his people. He will never in the future reject his people. God's people are God's people, and God will never reject his own. I hear in the echoes and the background the words of the psalmist in Psalm 94 where it says that God will never forsake his own people. He will never forsake his inheritance. Now, why would Paul make such a bold statement that God will not reject his people? He gives a couple of reasons in the opening verses. For one, Paul says, look at me. Paul is exhibit A. He says, I am an Israelite. I'm a descendant of Abraham. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, it is true that earlier Paul had spoken in very symbolic ways of being a Jew. In fact, earlier in the Roman treatise, he said that a Jew is not one who is one outwardly, but one inwardly. That circumcision is not merely physical, that it is spiritual. And it is true that there are many places in the book of Romans where Paul speaks of being an Israelite or being a Jew in a very uh, symbolic way. But I think here he's being very literal. He's saying literally, I am an Israelite. And if you make the claim that God has rejected all of Israel, then all you have to do to refute that claim is give one example of one person who's not been rejected. And Paul says, look at me, I'm exhibit A. God has not rejected all of Israel because he has not rejected me. I am an Israelite. I'm a descendant of Abraham. I can trace my lineage through Benjamin, the beloved son of Jacob and Rachel. I am one who has been sovereignly selected by God. Many of you know the story of Paul. He used to be called Saul. He was breathing out murderous threats against the church. He was on his way to Damascus, and Jesus showed up. And Jesus showed up in a bright light, literally knocked him off his high horse, blinded his eyes, transformed his life, converted the one named Saul, called him Paul, and then sent him as an apostle to the Gentiles. Paul says, my life is evidence that God has not rejected all of Israel. Just look at me. I've been transformed. I have a testimony of the goodness and the massive mercy of God. And if God can do that for me, Paul says, he can certainly do it for you. So in the church at Rome, if there was the idea that God had rejected all of Israel, Paul says, absolutely not. Look at me. Then he travels back into the sacred scriptures of what we call the Old Testament. He says, do you remember the story of Elijah? Elijah is another example of one who was not rejected by God. He is one who lived hundreds of years before the coming of Christ, and yet by faith he trusted in Yahweh, the Lord himself. Elijah was a powerful prophet. He was one who had a great showdown on Mount Carmel with the false prophets of Baal. In that moment, they were going to decisively decide who is the one true God. Is it Yahweh? Is it the Lord? Or is it Baal, this pagan God that was believed to be the God who controlled the weather forecast, always standing on a cloud, holding a lightning bolt in his hand? And so Elijah said, let's have a showdown. Let's have a contest. Both you and I will build an altar, and we will pray to our God. I'll even let you go first. 
You pray to that God, God that you call Baal, and whichever God answers with fire, that's the one true God. Sound fair? Sound right? Everybody was in agreement. And so that day, for hours on end, the false prophets of Baal, they called on Baal. They called on their false god. They cut themselves in the hopes that the flowing of their blood would grab the attention of their deity. They, 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 they called on him, and Elijah started talking smack talk. He started saying, maybe Baal can't hear you. Maybe you need to cry out louder. Maybe he's gone to the bathroom. Maybe he's gone fishing. Maybe he's just out for lunch. And and he's just talking sanctimonious smack talk. And all day long, they cried out to Baal, and Baal did not answer. And at the end of the day, when it came time for the evening sacrifice, it's Elijah who stood up. He doused the altar. So not only the animal, but the wood was also soaked. The trench around the altar was full of water. And Elijah just simply said, Lord, show up. And show off. Show yourself strong and mighty. And God sent a lightning bolt that not only consumed that animal and the altar, torched the wood, but it also torched the stones and licked up the water. And Elijah proved once and for all that God is the one true God of the universe. He's on cloud nine. I mean, this is a victory dance. This is, this is an opportunity for Elijah to be carted off like a, a victorious coach of the Super Bowl, man. I mean, this is an opportunity for him to celebrate. But Jezebel, that naughty diva of the Old Testament, Jezebel said, by this time tomorrow, I will kill you. Elijah took her at, his, at her word. He spiraled down into depression he ran a marathon some 27 miles from Mount Carmel to Jezreel. When he got to Jezreel, he traveled an additional 90 miles to the southern tip of Judah in Beersheba. Once arriving in Beersheba, he went into the desert, sat under a broom tree, and this powerful preaching prophet became a pathetic pouting prophet, and he simply cried out to God and said, God, they have killed all your prophets. I'm the only one left, and now they're going to kill me too. Why don't you just take my life because it's not worth living? And Elijah asked God to kill him. In our passage, Paul asked the Roman church, do you remember how God replied? God said to Elijah, I've got 7,000 who have never bowed the knee to Baal. You think you're all by yourself, but God said, I always reserve a remnant. I always Keep those to bear testimony of who I truly am. You think you're all by yourself, but you're not. There are 7,000 strong who have never bowed the knee to Baal. I always have a remnant. The Apostle Paul says to those who are making the claim that God has rejected his people, he says, no, he has not rejected all of Israel. I'm exhibit A. Look at Elijah. Look at the 7,000 in his day. And even in this day, Paul says, there are still some descendants of Abraham who claim and acknowledge that Jesus is Messiah. In verse 5, he says, Even in this present day, there is a remnant chosen by grace. If it's not chosen by grace, it's got to be chosen by works. And if 
election, if salvation is based upon works, it's no longer grace. But God, from the very beginning of time, he has sovereignly selected his people. He has chosen his remnant to bear testimony of his witness. And Paul says not all of Israel has been rejected. Because even in the midst of this massive rejection of the mercy of God in Jesus Christ, God has still orchestrated a remnant. He then quotes some of the Old Testament celebrities. I mean, you're talking about people like Moses and Isaiah, even David. And in those next few quotations of Romans chapter 11, he quotes words like, that the others, the others have been hardened. For God gave them a spirit of stupor. He gave them eyes, but they could not see. He gave them ears, but they could not hear. Their backs are bent forever. The imagery of a back being bent is the imagery of iniquity, twistedness, bent over under a heavy load of bricks. More than one a Bible author has spoken to this word iniquity as, as being bent over by a heavy load of sin. And Moses, Isaiah, David says that, that God has given some people eyes, but they can't see. Ears, but they can't hear. And there's no way for their sin to be forgiven, for they are forever bent over. Now, friend, if this idea of a spirit of stupor, if this idea of the election of some, if it causes you to be concerned, let me just remind you that God does all things well. As we said last week, you and I do not want a fair God. We don't want God to be fair with us, not any of us. Because if God were fair with us, he would send us all to a very deserving place called hell for all of eternity. The wonder of salvation is not that some are saved and others are not. The wonder of salvation is that any of us are saved at all. The Puritan preacher described it this way. When he concluded that the same sun in the sky causes ice to melt and it hardens the desert dirt. It's the same sun. The intensity from that same sun in the sky has different effects on different objects. That sun causes some ice to melt, and it causes the dry dirt in the desert to become hardened. In a similar way, what the Puritan preacher was saying is that God's intense kindness, his overwhelming compassion, his massive mercy, it melts the hearts of some of us, doesn't it? It melts our hearts. We are liquid in the hands of God because when we see God's massive mercy, when we feel the intensity of his kindness and his compassion, we simply melt before him. Can I get an amen? But there are some people that when they view the kindness of God, they don't see it as kindness. They see it as sternness. They don't see it as compassion. They see it as chaos, and they are hardened like the dry dirt of the desert. But don't misinterpret Paul's argument. He's answering the question, did God reject his people? And the answer is no. How do you know that God has not rejected his people? Because some people respond in faith, and your willful faith is evidence of your election. So God has not 
left himself without a witness. Even in the first century, even in Israel, when by and large most people were rejecting Jesus as king, there was still a remnant. And what's true in that day is still true in this day. God is always calling out a remnant. In fact, if we were to fast forward to the book of Revelation, we will see that there will be a remnant from every nation. For there will be believers from every tribe, every kindred, every nation, and every tongue. God will preserve himself a witness in every single nation, not just the nation of Israel, but all nations, Jew and Gentile, because God will always call for himself a remnant. But still, the question needs to be asked. In verse 11, did they, being Israel, did they stumble? Did they stumble so far as to fall beyond recovery? In other words, is there any hope for Israel? And the answer is, there's always hope. The gospel is a beacon of hope. It is a declaration of hope. We were hopeless. Christ came, redeemed us, and now we have hope eternal. There is always hope in any situation. I'm not just being a glass half full kind of guy. I'm not just being optimistic. I'm being biblical here because in the Bible, God always gives hope. There is always hope. Have the people of Israel fallen beyond recovery? The answer is no. Why? Because there's always hope in God. Always. There is always hope in God. Let that message be loud and clear in the church today, that there is always hope in God, regardless of the nation, regardless of the situation, regardless of the circumstance. There is always hope in God. The majority of chapter 11, I'll call a ricochet effect of righteousness. You could also speak of it as the boomerang effect of God's blessing. But for the rest of Romans chapter 11, you will see how God's righteousness ricochets throughout the nations. At first, certainly, God's favor, his blessing, his righteousness rested on Israel. The patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Some of you may recall what God said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. He said, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. In fact, I will bless anybody who blesses you. And I will curse anybody who curses you. Your descendants, Abraham, will be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And in Genesis chapter 15, Abraham believed God and it was credited unto him as righteousness. The righteousness of father Abraham was not based on Abraham's works, It was based on Abraham's faith. He believed God's word. And that's the recipe for salvation. If we believe upon the very word of God, we will be saved. So Father Abraham had the favor of the Lord. It was was transferred. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the way down through the patriarchs. Paul has already itemized all the blessings, all the gifts, all the calling that Israel has received. But in the first century when Jesus came onto the scene, When the word became flesh and dwelt among us, Jesus was rejected by most as Messiah. So what happened? Did God just wring his hands as if not knowing what to do? Oh no. His righteousness ricocheted to the Gentiles. Paul says that my ministry is an apostleship to the Gentiles. And I do this because God's salvation, his gospel, is not just for Jew, it's also for Greek. 
It's also for those who are non-Jewish. But Paul kind of pulls back the curtain when he says, I take this ministry so seriously in the hopes that when my own people see God blessing you as a Gentile, that it just might stir up and arouse in them a holy envy so that they will say, I want some of that. I want what those Gentiles have. If God's favor that used to rest on our forefathers is now resting on Gentiles, maybe we've done something wrong. Maybe Jesus is Messiah. Maybe he is king. And Paul says, I have, I have given myself to this ministry to the Gentiles in the hopes of saving some of my own countrymen, saving some people by arousing inside of them a hunger for the holy things of God. Paul gives two illustrations. The first, he just briefly mentions. It's a lump of dough. The second illustration is more elaborate. It's the grafting of branches into a tree. In the first illustration that Paul just pretty much mentions, then he skips on to the second one. He says, listen, um, if, if the first part of the lump of dough is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the first is good, then all of it's good. His implication is this which rested in and through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that, that all those who have the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they will all be blessed, and the whole lump of dough will be regarded as holy. He quickly moves on to a second illustration. It's the illustration of grafting branches into a tree. I gotta be honest with you, I have never even attempted to graft a branch into a tree. Maybe some of you have, some of you may be really good at it. But listen to this illustration. It was customary for the gardener to always inspect the trees. Whenever he came across branches that were dead, the gardener would cut them off. How did the gardener know that those particular branches were dead? Well, two reasons. Number one, they produced no fruit. Number two, they had no life. No life-giving sap that came up from the root system. So the branch was dead. And if it was dead, it bore no fruit and it had no life, then according to the gardener, it really had no purpose. So the gardener would cut off that branch. Most of the time, the gardener would then go and find a cultivated branch to graft into the cultivated tree. He would find another natural olive branch to be grafted into a otherwise healthy natural olive tree. But listen to this illustration. Paul says that the gardener did not go find another cultivated branch to replace those branches that had been cut off. He did not go to find another olive branch that was healthy to be grafted into an otherwise healthy olive tree. No, this gardener, he went and found a wild shoot. Uncultivated. One that was unnatural. One that was something that no gardener would ever attempt to do. And this gardener, in Paul's illustration, he not only took the wild olive shoot unnatural, uncultivated, and not only attempted to graft it into the healthy olive tree, but the gardener was successful in doing it. So that 
The branch, the wild olive shoot that was grafted in, it was, it was part of the tree. How do you know it was part of the tree? Because that branch, that wild olive shoot began to produce fruit and began to have life that was life coming from the root system of the tree. In this illustration, all the applause goes to the gardener. It doesn't go to the branch. It all goes to the gardener because it demonstrates the expertise, the skill, and the knowledge and the success and the excellence of the gardener. The gardener did something that no other gardener would even attempt to do. The gardener, he, he, just, he didn't just attempt it, but he was successful in grafting in a wild olive shoot into a healthy olive tree. It is Jeremiah the prophet who said that Israel is an olive tree. It is Jesus who said in John chapter 15, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me, you will bear much fruit. Many of you already know the major players in the analogy. But in this illustration, God is the gardener. The branches that were cut off, that's non-believing Israel. The olive tree, that's, that's uh, the remnant of Israel. The wild olive shoots that were grafted in, <laughs> that's you and me. That's the Gentiles. We're so unnatural, uncultured, uncultivated. We're just a wild olive shoot that God picked up and he grafted us in. And if he can successfully graft us in, Paul says, then the righteousness of God will ricochet back to Israel. Because if he can successfully graft you into faith, then certainly he can regraft the natural limbs and branches of Israel back into the tree. So the apostle uses a rather elaborate illustration. And the point of the illustration is not for us to focus on the branches. But the point is for us to focus on the gardener. For it is God who is an expert. It is God who is talented. It is God who has the skill. It was because of non-belief that the branches were cut off. It's because of your faith, your belief in Jesus, that you were successfully grafted in. So we live with some of the nourishing sap of the root system so that we can say like Paul that as believers, we too are children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because we come from this Judeo-Christian background and we've been successfully grafted in. Paul says towards the end of our chapter, before it's all said and done, God, the great gardener, he will successfully regraft in some of Israel. And how's he going to do that? Because they too will have faith in Jesus Christ. That's the key. Whether you're Jew or Gentile, the only one who's in the tree, the only one who is a a fruit-producing branch, the only one who has the life from the root system, the only one is one who declares by faith that Jesus Christ is Lord. And before it's all said and done, Paul says, there'll be a massive influx of Israel. So the remnant of Israel will get larger. In verse 25, Paul says, there has been a hardening in part in Israel so that you Gentiles might be grafted in. It's at this moment that you ought to say thank you, Jesus. 
I mean, I don't know how often you think of yourself as a Gentile. I don't know how often you think of yourself as a wild shoot. I don't know how often you think of yourself as some dead branch from an unnatural olive tree that somehow God grafted successfully in to his faith. But in this moment, I mean, most of the people I'm probably looking at, most if not all, are pretty Gentile. I mean, I don't know very many of you that are uh, of Jewish physical descent. There may be some that are listening. There may be some. But, but by and large, most of us are Gentiles. And I don't know if we've ever thought of ourselves as a wild olive shoot. But on this day, we ought to say, God, thank you. Because you are an excellent gardener. You grafted me in, not because of who I am, but because of who you are. It is not my merit. It's your mercy. It's not my goodness. It's your grace. You just picked me up off the floor. You just picked me up and you successfully grafted me in. And the way we know God has grafted grafted us in is because we produce fruit and we have life eternal. And all that's based on Jesus Christ our Lord. There has been a hardening in part, Paul says, in Israel. So that the full number of Gentiles may come in. People ask the question, what's that number? I have no clue. If you ever hear a preacher that tells you what the number is, run as fast as you can away from that preacher. There ain't nobody who knows the full number of Gentiles. But whenever the full number comes in, then God will successfully regraft Israel, believing Israel, those who claim Jesus Christ as Lord. And Paul says, it will be as if all of Israel will be saved. Now, friend, I got to tell you, I think Paul is speaking hyperbole in this moment. I don't think he's saying that every, every Israelite will be saved. Because certainly, up until now, there have been people outside of Christ who have been of Jewish descent, and they have not been saved simply because they're of Israel. I think he's saying that all believing Israel will be saved. And we know that to be true. All believers will be saved, whether you're Jew or Gentile. But, friend, there, there's coming a day when Jesus is coming back. I mean, there's coming a day when he will peel back the clouds. There is coming a day when he will mount his horse. There is coming a day when he will descend and tattooed on his thighs are King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There's coming a day when King Jesus will come in his royal robe that's dipped in blood. There's coming a day when he will descend with all of the angels. There's coming a day when he will come and rescue his church, rescue the believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's coming a day when he will come and right all the wrongs. And on that day, there'll be a great acclamation where people People will say, salvation belongs to our God, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What I just described to you is not in a comic book, it's in the Bible. Because the Bible describes how Jesus will come back and he will right all the wrongs. So that the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians will come true. That the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God Almighty. You get to the end of the passage of Romans chapter 11, and I've got to be honest with you, the question that stirs in my spirit might be the question that stirs in your spirit. We understand that Israel is a phenomenon. We understand uh, uh, that that it's it's a, a nation that should be insignificant and obsolete, but it's still around. But why should we be concerned about this? That's the question. When I get done with Romans chapter 11, I ask myself, why should we as the church be concerned about the nation of Israel? John Calvin said, 
Israel is the remnant. It's believing Israel. So Calvin will say that the church is made up of believers, Jew and Gentile. That this is the description of the church. This is the promise that's given to the church. And friend, I've got to tell you, I agree with John Calvin. I understand what he's saying. But there's still something in my spirit that says, but wait a minute, John. Wait a minute. Because here in this passage, it would seem that Paul is describing himself as not a merely spiritual descendant of Abraham, but a physical one. So, so why? Why is he telling the church of the first century, and I'm telling the church of the 21st century, that we need to be concerned about the salvation of Israel? Why, why is this important? I understand what Paul says in the passage. You and I ought not to be arrogant. We ought not to be ignorant. We are Gentiles, and we know that the benefit of our faith was first handed to Jews, and then through the faithfulness of those believing Jews, it was handed to Gentile nations. So we ought not to be ignorant. We ought not to be arrogant. I understand that. I also understand what maybe more than a few of you will say to me, but it is a good thing for us to defend and protect Israel. Pastor, don't you remember Genesis chapter 12? I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. So any church or nation that blesses Israel will be blessed by God. And you may also say to me that any church or congregation or dare I say any nation that distance herself from Israel is done to that nation's detriment. And I understand that. I get that. But friend, I think that there's an even greater meaning of why we ought to be concerned about Israel. And I don't want you to miss it. I think the reason Paul writes chapter 11 is to communicate to the church that God is trustworthy. You can trust him. If he makes a promise, he will keep that promise. If he makes a promise to his people, he will keep that promise for his people. So we ought to always keep our eye on Israel because we know that before Jesus comes back, there will be a massive remnant turning of Israel to Jesus Christ as Lord. And so we keep our eye on that because we know that God is a God who keeps his promises. He's a God who can be trusted. Remember, Paul is broken over the lostness of his nation, and he longs for his country to be saved. Do you long for your country to be saved? Do you long for your neighbors and your classmates and your coworkers? I mean, are you, are you really praying and asking God, please, before Jesus comes back, will you send a massive revival? That's what Paul is doing in Romans chapter 11. He's saying, God, please send a massive revival. And regardless, I know you're a God who can be trusted. And King Jesus, you can be trusted. Because you're the king of the universe, not just of this nation of Israel, but of all the nations. So Jesus, you can be trusted. Paul writes these words, so the church in Rome and the church in Pelham will know that our God can be trusted. Remember the two questions. Did God reject his people? No, he can't, he won't. Do people fall Stumble as if to fall beyond recovery? No, because anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How can you say that, preacher? Because King Jesus can be trusted. Because we can trust God. 
we know that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We trust God for if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. We trust God because everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We trust God because if the Son has set you free, you'll be free indeed. We trust God because God will give us all that we need according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. We trust God because God will never leave us nor forsake us. We trust God because God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. That whoever believes upon him shall not perish but have everlasting life. We trust God because God will never forsake his own. We trust God because God is good. We trust God because God is great. We trust God because the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We can trust God in every situation, in every circumstance, in any culture, in any country. We can trust God because God is good. We always have hope, and my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. And I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but I wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All of the ground is sinking sand. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All of the ground is sinking sand, friend. There is always hope. Why? Because of King Jesus. So friend, if you're here today and you've never taken Jesus at his word that he can save you, today can be the day of your salvation. As soon as we start singing, please come, take one of the ministers by the hand and say, I I need to trust God in Christ. Maybe you're here today and you are a believer. But there's somebody in your family, somebody at work, at school, somebody down the street. And they seem so hard. Their heart is hard towards the gospel. And you just need to come and pray and say, God, please have mercy upon them. Soften that heart of stone. Enable that person to melt like ice before you. Beloved, let me tell you, just because somebody looks hard right now, they don't have to stay hard. Because if they respond in faith, They melt in the compassion and the kindness of God. And maybe you just need to come today and pray, please melt that hard heart so that that person too can be successfully grafted in. Because God, you are an excellent gardener. And as a church, we just declare, God, I trust you. Heavenly Father, we bow before you, and that is what we want to say. We trust you. Our hope is in you. You are reliable. You are trustworthy. You are kind. You are compassionate. And Father, we do pray that if there is hearts of stone that right now, your massive mercy will melt that heart like ice. Father, help us to live a life of unbroken praise to you. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.